The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in the, uh, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, the, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks. Oh, sorry, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let me pray for you, Mike. Father, we, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us and open our eyes to the truth of your word. Where we need to be comforted, would you comfort us? Where we need to be challenged and convicted, would you do that also for us, Lord? Father, I ask for Mike this morning as he preaches to us that you would give him uh, the words to say. You would put your words in his mouth and in his mind and into his, into his heart as well, Lord. You would put your word into our ears and our hearts as well through him this morning, Father. Amen. Uh, well, good morning again, and um, thank you so much, Jimmy, for the uh, invitation to come and speak this morning. This is um, not the first time I've been here, the first time I've spoken, but this is kind of our, our holiday church. Um, we, we like staying from Risen, we like staying at Moffat Beach, and so normally bring the family. I've got three kids, I've got a seven-week-old at home. We, we tried to come up this morning, uh, but it was just a little bit too much, so um, they send their apologies. Um, but I just want to say as well, like I, um, we're aware of um, the week that you guys have had, and uh, we as a church, City on a Hill, we're part of the Acts 29 family as well. We have been praying for you guys. Uh, we love you guys. We're with you as well. Um, I'm going to pray uh, again for us, then we're going to look at God's Word. I'm going to pray a prayer that millions of other Christians, we're praying today, a traditional prayer for Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Merciful God. As we enter this holy week, as we gather at your house of prayer, turn our hearts again to Jerusalem, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that united with Christ and all the faithful, may we one day enter in triumph to the city not made with hands, but the new Jerusalem, eternal in the heavens, where Christ with you and the Holy Spirit lives in glory forever. Amen. Well, January 20, 2009 was one of the most memorable days of my life. Why is that? Well, it was the inauguration of Barack Obama. 
Why was that memorable? Because I was actually there. I was in the crowd amongst nearly 2 million people on this strip in Washington uh, called The Mall. Uh, sort of a bit like, imagine kind of Caloundra kind of going down, um, you know, down Bullcock Beach, sort of maybe a, a, couple, a couple million people packed uh, in that strip. It was a crazy, a crazy time. It was below zero the whole time which is pretty cold. I know we sort of think when it gets in the teens, it's kind of freezing, but it was below zero the whole time. Um, in fact, here's a photo. I think I've got a photo of me. Um, yeah, look, look what I was wearing. Like, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous what I was wearing. Uh, that's actually John Oliver interviewed me. That's another story as well. I can tell you about that over tea and coffee afterwards. But, but look back. Go back. I've got the, 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 some photos of just the procession that was there, the motorcades, all the sniper rifles kind of you know, up on the, up on the, the, the ledges, um, just peering out at crazy security. It was a, a monumental, historic day. You know, people, the crowd that had grown up, um, many older people grown up in an area of segregation. Uh, most recently, President Bush was the, before that. You know, there was an era where, where terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, global recession uh, was starting. And this day, the first president of color was sworn in, a younger man in his 40s, relatively speaking. Um, and uh, he built his campaign around these two slogans. Remember, hope and yes, we can. <laughs> in his speech, Obama, he said this, On this day, we gather because we've chosen hope over fear, unity over purpose, conflict, and discord. For everywhere we look, there is work to be done. The state of our economy calls for action, bold and swift, and we will act not to only to create new jobs, but to lay a foundation for growth. We'll restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders to raise healthcare's quality and lower its cost. We will harness the sun and the winds and the soil to fuel our cars and run our factories, and we'll transform our schools and colleges and universities to meet the demands of a new age. All this we can do, all this we will do. As the world looked on to usher in this new reign, the beginning of a new era, there was a sense of real expectation, a real hope, real change, not just for America, but indeed for the world. The coming king and savior of the world was finally here. The world now had hope. Now fast forward 14 years, it's clear the world still does need a saviour. The world needs a better king. But there's good news. We don't have to wait for another powerful politician. We don't have to wait for some tech trillionaire to come and save the world. We already have our saviour. And of course, his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ the King. This morning, as we continue uh, the series that that you've been doing, looking at the King of Kings, we're going to look at Jesus, the upside-down this is not the king of the world that they expected, not, especially not in first century Jerusalem. He's one who flips expectations on their head. In fact, even the next couple of verses, 12 and 13, he comes into the temple, the kind of house of the capital, and he flips the tables over. He welcomes sinners. He breaks religious rules. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Let's set the scene. As we enter into what's known as Passion Week, it's the Sunday, Palm Sunday, just five days before Jesus' death. We're looking at one of the biographies of Jesus, the book of Matthew, and there's this is great turning point in the book of Matthew. Jesus had been teaching, performing miracles, and in Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, who do you say I am? So who do people say I am? And the disciples, that they, they answer him, well, you know, some people, they say you're John the Baptist, some say you're one of the prophets, like Jeremiah, Elijah. 
I know even back then, people had lots of different diverse ideas about who Jesus was. You know, some say he was this John the Baptist, this desert preacher who, who was a straight shooter, uh, who wore some weird, weird stuff, had an unusual diet. He, he was known for speaking blunt, bold sermons and even uh, called out King Herod uh, for his um, sexual sin. Others say he was another prophet like Elijah, Jeremiah, you know, come back to life. But then Jesus turns the, the question towards his disciples and he says this, who do you say I am? That's a key question uh, that we see all throughout this Gospel of Matthew. And arguably, it's the most important question for us today. Who do you say he is? Who is Jesus? Peter, he has a crack at it, and he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then he, he gets it wrong. He says, no, Jesus, you can't die. When Jesus starts teaching about what's going to happen, the Son of Man must suffer many things and, and be handed over to the authorities, be crucified. Peter's like, no, 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 no. That cannot happen. That's not the king we need. Jesus came not to primarily to, to make the world a nicer place or to teach a message of love or to give people some values. Those things have some truth, but that's not why he came. He's the king who came to die. This is the reason. This is the main purpose of Jesus' mission, this upside-down mission. He says it again in the preceding chapter, Matthew 20, 28, that I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so today, Palm Sunday, just less than a week before we celebrate this death, this is what Easter is all about, to celebrate this king who rules by death. And the passage we're looking at today, um, we're one week out, like, like the story, let's set the scene. Uh, it's somewhat, although very different, somewhat like an inauguration moment. You know, in Washington, there are millions have gathered to see Obama uh, and future presidents be welcomed in uh, today in our passage. Perhaps hundreds of thousands had come to this city of Jerusalem uh, to celebrate a great festival, Passover. A Passover was a reminder of God's faithfulness, how he'd rescued and redeemed people out of slavery and into the promised land. The city would have been packed. You know, think of like a massive festival down at Calandra. All the hotels are booked. People are camping on the beach. It's crowded. It's chaotic. And the first thing we're going to see about Jesus is his upside-down arrival. Upside down arrival. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 1. And so, as Jesus had been, he'd been proceeding uh, through, he comes to Jerusalem, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. It's got a little map, uh, should pop up on the screen. Not the, not the best map, sort of the best I could find. But Jesus, he'd sort of come through from the West. And this crowd, this motley crew of people had followed him after he'd been teaching uh, and presiding in miracles. Uh, perhaps if we look at other gospel accounts in John, uh, we see that maybe the night before, uh, he'd stayed kind of with, with Lazarus, actually, and, and Mary and Martha. Uh, he'd healed, remember, Lazarus from death to life. People had heard about that, and people from the state of Galilee had sort of come to follow him, to hear his teaching, and they had kind of gathered with him on this procession towards the city, the city where the culmination of his mission would be. Uh, so keep reading uh, with me to verse 2. Um, he sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Uh, 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you anything to you, you should say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, what's that on about? You know, they say, Jesus says, go, you know, immediately, like quick, this is urgent. Go and bring me a donkey and a colt. And Jesus says, hey, if anyone asks any questions, it's okay. Just say the Lord needs them. You know, they, they go immediately. Uh, but that's a weird request. What's going on? This donkey, female donkey and a colt, uh, like her teenage kind of adolescent son, uh, which Mark records uh, and Luke as well, that this, this colt had never been ridden before. Um, what's going on? That's a weird request from Jesus. Well, one of the, the best Bible reading tips I've ever received is if you're not sure about what's happening, just, just read on. And maybe the next verses will explain it. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. Well, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of, the, of, a beast of burden. See, Matthew is telling us uh, that this was fulfilling a prophecy from over 500 years before, uh, recorded in Isaiah, but specifically in Zechariah as well. And Zechariah 9.9 says that, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't it remarkable that over 500 years before, um, Jesus fulfills this, and he predicts this, there's a specificity to it, that a king would come entering into Jerusalem on two donkeys, even predicting the age and gender of this. Some people are skeptical. They say, well, you know, Jesus knew his Bible, and so he just kind of orchestrated all these events to kind of, you know, become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, yeah, Jesus did know his Bible. And actually, yes, he was orchestrating all of these things. But to bring a donkey and her son who had never been written before, like they knew about the disciples, like these disciples, they weren't you know, always the sharpest tools in the shed. For them to actually do this and fulfill this without any questions, this is an extraordinary prophetic prediction taking place. If we keep reading Zechariah, uh, it, it, it shows us the contrast of, of what this king is like and what he'll, he'll achieve. Uh, it should be on the screen from verse 10, that I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I'll set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I'm not going to spend too long there, but that's the picture of this king, of the message he had. But notice, uh, he's not coming on a chariot. Uh, That's what people would have expected, the war horse, the white horse coming in with a procession, with a motorcade, with bells and whistles and and leaders and an army. That's the the kind of king that people would have expected. Instead, what does he come on? A teenage donkey. Do you guys have um, e-scooters up here? Yeah, I think I might have seen one on the way in. Um, you know, we've got them everywhere in Brisbane. You know, people just kind of leave them all over the footpath, that kind of thing. But imagine the inauguration of a president, Obama, right? Imagine if Obama or Trump or Biden or whoever rocks up on an e-scooter. Like, that would be weird. That would be strange. You know, no motorcade, no security. Like, that would be very unusual. It's the picture of Jesus. He's this humble servant 
king. Keep reading with me verse 6. The disciples, they went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now, this, is the first time, this isn't the first time that Jesus tells his disciples to go. Uh, he says, Matthew 10, to go uh, to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. They do so. They're obedient. Of course, in the last words uh, in Matthew uh, that Jesus says, his great commissioning moment, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. The disciples, they, they were a flawed bunch of people, like you and I. But it was only because of their obedience that we are even able to gather here today. So they're obedient to the call. They bring a donkey and a colt, and Jesus sits on them. Now, does he sit on both? What's going on there? Well, I'm not sure. Like, maybe he alternates. Maybe he puts his stuff on one. We're not quite sure, but that's not the point. Now, the point is that Jesus, he's this king, this upside-down king, entering in this upside-down arrival into the city. So secondly, we see an upside-down audience. You know, think back to the context, first century Jerusalem. He's got a bunch of people that have come from just following Jesus, uh, from Galilee. Uh, and Matthew, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. Now, the Jews, they were living in and around Israel, but they weren't actually in control of their land. And this was massive for them. I mean, it's still massive today, like the Middle East, Israel, like it, it's a big deal today. But way back in Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham, that his descendants uh, would inherit this land, would have this nation known now as Israel. They'd be living under his rule and blessing. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, they did, in fact, get to the promised land, but they weren't able to live in peace and prosperity for, for very long in relative terms. In fact, the last time that God's people were living uh, in Israel under a king uh, was back in, uh, under Zedekiah in around the 6th century BC. It's now around 30 AD, 600 years later, the people of God had been waiting for their king. Israel had seen Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome come in and occupy their land. So they're waiting for someone to come in and make Israel great again, waiting for someone who would set them free from this physical bondage. And so you expect, well, we might be expecting a king to come in to the capital city on the land that you didn't occupy. You wouldn't expect to see a guy rocking up on a teenage donkey. But these guys knew their Bible, and this was written in Zechariah. So they see this man, and they say, could he be the one? How would the audience respond? We'll check out verse 8. Well, most of the crowd spread out their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. That's why today... It's called Palm Sunday. We can read another gospel account that it's palm leaves. I've even brought a couple of palm leaves from my garden. And, uh, and what they did is they just laid them out, sort of like a, you know, a red carpet, right? Just kind of laying down their, their palm leaves, uh, laying down also their cloaks, their jackets. Um, you know, the palm leaves, they were like a, a traditional sign of respect and honor for an important figure. In ancient Jewish culture, palm leaves were often seen as symbols of victory and triumph. Um, and the, the clothes as well, they were a sign of respect and humility. It's the crowd. that they, they sort of realized that something was up with this guy, that this guy, he might be the one, the Messiah, that was going to free them. I'll keep reading verse 9. And the crowds that went before him 
and the ones that followed him. There's two crowds there. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's crowds surrounding Jesus now. It's a bit of a frenzy, son of David. Uh, it's a, this title reminding us from, uh, from 2 Samuel 7, God's prophecy, that out of the line of David, King David, there'll be a king, a Messiah, whose kingdom will never end. Uh, however, there, there's this mixed audience here. You know, they don't all get it. You know, some have just been following Jesus because he was a miracle worker. Uh, some have been following Jesus because they thought he was going to start a revolution. Uh, some had even tried to make him king by force already. And others were plotting and scheming his death. And perhaps even others were just not even sure like what the noise was on about. They just kind of got caught up in the hype. But I love how Matthew describes the end of the passage in verse 10. Uh, he says this, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, literally kind of going crazy, saying, Who is this? Who is this? Like, they're confused. There's a party, there's bells and whistles, there's hype. Like, what's going on? Who is this? The crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They say he's a prophet. Now, that's partially correct. But it'd be like saying Elon Musk, he runs a business, or Steve Irwin, he was a good guy. Like, it doesn't really tell the story. Now, the audience is left asking this very question. This question I raised that Jesus has raised before. The key question of the life of Jesus. The key question that if we understand correctly, it's the way to make sense of our life. It's the way to know God. Who is this? Who is this king? Who is this guy rocking up on a cult, everyone cheering for him? What's going on? What's his mission? Well, we've seen the upside-down arrival, the upside-down audience, and finally, his upside-down ambition. King Jesus, he's not the king that the audience expects. He doesn't seek power, glory, or fame. He was offered by Satan the kingdoms of this world, but he said no. The criminal on the cross said, save yourself and us. He had the power to save himself and others, and yet he denied himself, became a ransom for many. He says his kingdom is not of this world. A kingdom where weakness is power. Power is weakness and suffering leads to glory. Now five days before, he enters this city for the exact purpose, on his time frame, to die. You know, he enters this city in this you know, triumphant, manic procession. You know, Some people even perhaps worshipping or treating him as a celebrity, perhaps out of confusion, maybe out of false hope. But it's all part of his plan. And Jesus knows that he, he needs to die on his timing. And, uh, and he hadn't yet been died, and so he kind of creates a bit of a, a, bit of a frenzy uh, so that he could be killed right on Passover. But the hope that Jesus is bringing, it's so much bigger and better than people could imagine. Jesus came to defeat our greatest enemy. You know, not Rome, not kind of some government oppression, not the man, but death. And we've already read that from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, this morning, that I don't need to convince anyone. Anyone after the week, you've had that death, it sucks. You know, death robs us. It separates us from those we love. But worst of all, it separates us from God. And all of us are born into a state of separation from God. 
We're born into a fallen, cursed world, cut off from God. We're not innocent bystanders, though, as well. We, we fall short. For honest, we fall short of even our own standards. How often do we disappoint ourselves, let alone God, who is holy and perfect and pure? And the Bible says in confronting you know, un-PC language that the wages, what you earn from your life, the wages of sin is death. That's what we all deserve, as awful as death is. If anyone knows death, it's our Lord Jesus. His death on the cross, it was a physically barbaric, torturous affair. He was the Prince of Peace, and yet... He was violently ripped apart. The word excruciating, when we think of someone going through excruciating pain, that literally means out of the cross. Uh, The Romans, they were good at inventing and perfecting stuff, and and they they designed crucifixion to make it as most painful as possible. But the death that Jesus died, it wasn't just physical. It was a spiritual one. That's why on the night before he died... He was in a state of psychological torment. He was distressed, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point where he was sweating like drops of blood. And he prayed. He prayed this prayer to the Father. He said, God, Father God, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. What's this cup? This cup of God's fury, his anger, his wrath that was to be poured out on the world for their sin and and rebellion against the holy God. Jesus says, I actually want a way out. I'm actually tempted in his humanity to not go through with this. God, no, he prays. I don't want to do it. He's crying. His his best mates, disciples are asleep. They're meant to be watching out for him. And yet, he says, not my will, but your will be done. That's his upside-down ambition. I don't want to do it yet. Father, not what I will, what you will be done. He denies, empties himself so that we can be full. In his humanity, he doesn't want to die. But his upside-down ambition leaves any, self in, any hint of self-interest and submits to his Father. And that's why on the cross, you know, when Jesus died, he cried out, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's separated from the Father at that point, taking on his wrath and fury. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Church, this is our upside-down king who died so we can have life. And of course, the, the story, it doesn't end there. And I love that Good Friday. It should leave us wanting uh, more because there is more. The Bible said that if Jesus stayed dead, then Christians would be pathetic, that we're still in our sins. But there's good news. Jesus beat death. He actually did rise from the dead. He appeared to more than 500 men and women and children. The resurrected Jesus hung out with people, ate with people, taught with people, walked with people. The resurrection means that, as we've already read, uh, we don't need to grieve like the world, who have no hope. Yes, we grieve. Yes, death is profound. Death is is wrong. But we don't have to have no hope. I'm going to end with a story of my friend who died in her 20s called Beck. Um, It would have been her birthday this week. And uh, age 21, 
She was perfectly healthy and she gets diagnosed with this rare form of kidney cancer. Only a handful of people in the world have it. You know, Beck was perhaps the, one of the most sweetest, most gentle, loving, kind people I ever met. Uh, she had a law degree but never got to use it because never able to work full time. Had a boyfriend but never married. Loved kids but was never able to be a mum. She had the opportunity to, to face death as her life was withering away. She knew that her time was nigh. And she wrote a blog which has an incredible confidence in her upside-down king. And she says this, There has been immense suffering, but also immense joy. It wasn't until a few years before my diagnosis that I became a Christian. And in the years since, there's been a lot of stretching and challenging of my faith on many levels, including intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. However, I'm convinced that there is greater meaning to this life than the things we can see and touch. And the Christian gospel has allowed me to make sense of this beautiful and heartbreaking world. I believe Jesus' words. I grieve for things I'll miss out on this life. I'm frustrated by time that was wasted. And while there's no good age to have cancer, a diagnosis in your early 20s comes with its own particular set of challenges and complexities. The past eight years have been marked by uncertainty, and navigating through that uncertainty was a constant challenge. If I seem ambivalent about life, deep down I was anything but. I struggled in feeling caught between two places, being a well-to-do 20-something type who, who should be starting out in life on an upward trajectory and a sick person, an incurable, life-threatening illness. But through this process, I was forced to humbly learn how little control we truly have over our own lives. I'm okay with admitting defeat, because while I know that I fought as hard as I could, this life is not all there is. My time here is limited, but I do not fear the lack of it, because who I am uh, is not defined by how I spent the precious time here on earth, what I achieved, or what amazing experiences I have. It doesn't matter that there were so many things I didn't get to do and experiences in this life. I am loved by God and I didn't have to worry about whether this life was enough because Christ has made me enough. I'm going to an eternity that offers more than I could ever imagine on this earth. As I enter my last days, I'm at peace. I can't say I'm without fear, but I'm not afraid. I have hope for what lies ahead redemption, and that I'm being brought home. And then quoting C.S. Lewis, she ends with this, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, and not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and turn even that agony into a glory. Church, that's how an upside-down king arriving on a donkey to a confused crowd, to an emission to die on the cross, that king is able to turn even the worst agony into a glory. Church, that's our king. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. 
but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 